0: From Eric Public Media and the Alaska Ice Corporation, this is the podcast Wikiredia, wherein we read from start to finish, without comment or commentary, the Wikipedia entries that we find fascinating. Today's topic, the Kursk submarine disaster. The original Wikipedia page lives at www.wikipedia.org wiki slash Kursk underscore submarine underscore disaster. Before we start, we want to know what your favorite Wikipedia pages are. Please send us suggestions for future episodes to wikiredia at pm.me. This is The Kursk Submarine Disaster, Wikiredia episode number 117, date of production August 5th, 2020. And I'm your host, Eric Goris. Let's get started. Kursk submarine disaster, the nuclear powered Oscar class submarine Kursk sank in an accident on August 12, 2000 in the Barents Sea during the first major Russian naval exercise in more than 10 years and all 118 personnel on board were killed. The crews of nearby ships felt the initial explosion and a second, much larger explosion. Yet the Russian Navy did not realize that an accident had occurred and did not initiate a search for the sub for more than six hours. By the time the Navy declared an emergency 11 hours later, the crew had all died, although no observers knew that. Because the submarine's emergency rescue buoy had been intentionally disabled during an earlier mission, it took more than 16 hours to locate the sunken boat. Over four days, the Russian Navy repeatedly failed in its attempts to attach four different diving bells and submersibles to the escape hatch of the submarine. Its response was criticized as slow and inept. Officials misled and manipulated the public and news media and refused help from other governments. President Vladimir Putin initially continued his vacation at a seaside resort. He authorized the Russian Navy to accept British and Norwegian offers of assistance, only after five days had passed since the accident. Seven days after the sinking, British and Norwegian divers finally opened a hatch to the escape trunk in the boat's flooded ninth compartment but found no survivors. The government of Russia and the Russian Navy were intensely criticized over the incident and their responses. Most of the wreck was raised and analyzed. The official investigation concluded that, as the crew of the Kursk was preparing to load a dummy torpedo, a faulty weld in its casing leaked high-test peroxide, causing the torpedo's kerosene fuel to explode. The explosion blew off both the inner and outer tube doors, ignited a fire, destroyed the bulkhead between the first and second compartments, damaged the control room in the second compartment, and incapacitated or killed the control room crew. The torpedo manufacturer challenged this hypothesis, insisting that its design would prevent the kind of event described. Two minutes and 15 seconds after the initial blast, the sub had reached the seafloor, when the intense initial fire triggered the detonation of between five and seven torpedo warheads. The second explosion was equivalent to more than two tons of TNT. It collapsed the bulkheads between the first three compartments and all the decks, tore a large hole in the hull, destroyed compartment four, killed everyone alive forward of the nuclear reactor in the fifth compartment. The nuclear reactors, however, shut down safely. Following salvage operations, analysts concluded that 23 sailors in the sixth through ninth compartments reached refuge in the small ninth compartment and survived for more than six hours as oxygen ran low. Crew members attempted to replace a potassium superoxide chemical oxygen cartridge which accidentally fell into the oily seawater and exploded on contact. The resulting fire killed several crew members and triggered a flash fire that consumed the remaining oxygen, suffocating the remaining survivors. Lacking information, families of the victims engaged in an angry and volatile meeting with newly elected President Vladimir Putin. The video coverage of the meeting was sanitized for Russian audiences, but leaked to international media. Russian audiences were shocked when they later saw this footage, which showed a distraught wife and mother being forcibly sedated before she was removed from the meeting. Mammoet was awarded the salvaging contract in May 2001, with the winter weather starting in early October. Within a three-month period, more than 3,000 tons of tailor-made equipment was designed, fabricated, installed, and commissioned onto a barge which was mobilized to the Barents Sea in August to raise the hull. Using the tailor-made equipment, they recovered all but the bow, including the remains of 115 soldiers who were buried in Russia. More than two years after the sinking, the Russian government completed a 133-volume top-secret investigation of the disaster. They released only a four-page summary that revealed stunning breaches of discipline, shoddy, obsolete, and poorly maintained equipment, and negligence, incompetence, and mismanagement. Moreover, they concluded that the rescue operation was unjustifiably delayed and that the Russian Navy was completely unprepared to respond to the disaster. Naval exercises and events. On the morning of August 12, 2000, Kursk was participating in the Summer X exercise, the first large scale naval exercise planned by the Russian Navy in more than a decade, and also its first since the fall of the Soviet Union. It consisted of 30 ships and three submarines. Kursk had recently won a citation for its excellent performance and had been recognized as having the best submarine crew in the Northern Fleet. Although this was an exercise, Kursk loaded a full complement of conventional combat weapons. It was one of the few submarines authorized to carry a combat load at all times. This included 18 SSN-16 Stallion anti-submarine missiles and 24 SSN-19-P-700 Granite shipwreck cruise missiles, which were designed to defeat the best naval air defenses. Kursk Gursk enjoyed a mythical standing. It was reputedly unsinkable, and there were claims it would withstand a direct hit from a torpedo. The outer hull was constructed using 8mm steel plate covered by up to 80 millimeters of rubber, which minimized other submarines or surface vessels' ability to detect the submarine. The inner pressure hull was made of high-quality 50mm steel plate. The two hulls were separated by a 1 to 2 meter gap. The inner hull was divided into nine watertight compartments. The boat was as long as two jumbo jets. At 8.51 local time, Kursk requested permission to conduct a torpedo training launch and received the response good. After considerable delay, the submarine was set to fire two dummy torpedoes at the Kirov-class battlecruiser Peter Feliski. At 11.29 local time, the torpedo room crew loaded the first practice Type 65 kit torpedo, without a warhead into Kursk number 4 torpedo tube on the starboard side. It was 10.7 meters long and weighed five tons. At 11.29 and 34 seconds, seismic detectors at the Norwegian Seismic Array and in other locations around the world recorded a seismic event of magnitude 1.5 on the Richter scale. The location was fixed at coordinates 68 degrees, 38 minutes north, 37 degrees, 19 minutes east, northeast of Murmansk, approximately 250 kilometers from Norway and 80 kilometers from the Kola Peninsula. At 1131.48, two minutes and 14 seconds after the first, a second event measuring 4.2 on the Richter scale, or 250 times larger than the first, was registered on seismographs across northern Europe and was detected as far away as Alaska. The second explosion was equivalent to two to three tons of TNT. The seismic data showed that the explosion occurred at the same depth as the seabed. The seismic event, triangulated at 69 degrees 36 minutes north, 37 degrees 34 minutes east, showed that the boat had moved about 400 meters from the site of the initial explosion. It was enough time for the submarine to sink 108 meters and remain on the seafloor for a short period. Rescue response. The crew of the submarine Karelia detected the explosion, but the captain assumed that it was part of the exercises. Aboard the Peter Velisky, the target of the practice launch, the crew detected a hydroacoustic signal characteristic of an underwater explosion and felt their hull shudder. They reported the phenomena to the fleet headquarters, but the report was ignored. The scheduled time period for Kursk to complete the practice torpedo firing expired at 1330 without any contact from the sub. Accustomed to the frequent failure of communications equipment, fleet commander Admiral Popov aboard the Peter Velisky was not initially alarmed. The ship dispatched a helicopter to look for Kursk, but it was unable to locate the sub on the surface. This was reported to Popov. The Northern Fleet duty officer notified the head of the fleet's search and rescue forces, Captain Teslenko, to stand up for orders. Teslenko's primary rescue ship was a 20-year-old former lumber carrier, the Mikhail Rudinitsky, which had been converted to support submersible rescue operations. Teslenko notified the ship's captain to be ready to depart on 1 hour's notice. Berth at the primary Northern Fleet base at Severomorsk. The ship was equipped with two AS-32 and AS-34 Pritz-class deep submergence rescue vehicles, a diving bell, underwater video cameras, lifting cranes, and other specialized gear. But she was not equipped with stabilizers capable of keeping the vessel in position during stormy weather and could lower her rescue vessels only in calm seas. The Russian Navy had previously operated two Indiana-class submarines, each of which carried a pair of Poseidon-class DSRVs that could reach a depth of 693 meters. But due to the lack of funds, the vessels had been held since 1994 in a St. Petersburg yard for pending repairs. At 1700 hours, an Aleutian 38 aircraft was dispatched and its crew looked for Kursk for three hours without spotting anything. One hour later, at 1800 hours, more than six hours after the explosion, the Kursk failed to complete a scheduled communication check. The Northern Fleet Command became concerned and tried to contact the boat. After repeated failures, at 18 hour, 1830, they began a search and rescue operation, dispatching additional aircraft to locate the submarine, which again failed to locate the boat on the surface. At 22 hours, 30 minutes, the Northern Fleet declared an emergency and the exercise was stopped. Between 15 and 22 vessels of the Northern Fleet, including about 3,000 sailors, began searching for the submarine. The Mikhail Rudinitsky left port at 30 minutes after midnight. The Russian Navy initially downplayed the incident. Late on Saturday night, nine hours after the boat sank, Northern Fleet Commander Admiral Popov ordered the first search for the submarine. 12 hours after it sank, Popov informed the Kremlin, but Minister of Defense Igor Sergeyev did not notify Putin until seven o'clock Sunday morning. Sergeyev did not recommend that Putin visit the disaster site. On Sunday, after Popov already knew that Kursk was missing and presumed sunk, he briefed reporters on the progress of the naval exercise. He said the exercise had been a resounding success and spoke highly of the entire operation. Early on Sunday morning at Vityevo Naval Base, rumors began to circulate among family members of Kursk's crew that something was wrong. A telephone operator handled an unusual volume of calls and she overheard that a submarine was in trouble and the boat's name. The base was very small and news spread quickly. The wives and family members exchanged news, but nobody had any more information. Kursk had been previously regarded as unsinkable, and so family members could not believe the worst of the rumors. They hoped that the submarine was just temporarily unable to communicate. The deputy base commander reassured the women that the headquarters office was half empty and that the officers present were just passing the time. On the afternoon of the explosion, before the Kremlin had been informed of the submarine sinking, U.S. National Security Advisor Sandy Berger and Defense Secretary William Cohen were told that the Kursk had sunk. Once officially informed, the British government, along with France, Germany, Israel, Italy, and Norway, offered help and the United States offered the use of one of its two deep-submergence rescue vehicles. But the Russian government refused all foreign assistance. Minister of Defense Igor Sergeyev told the American embassy that the rescue was well underway. The Russian Navy told reporters that a rescue was imminent. At 4.50 on Sunday, personnel aboard the Peter Fileski found two anomalies on the seabed that might be the Kursk. At 900 hours, Mikhail the Mikhail Rudininsky arrived at the location. While setting anchor, its crew interpreted an acoustic sound as an SOS from the submarine, but soon concluded that the noise had been produced by the anchor chain striking the anchor hole. At 1130 on Sunday, the 13th of August, the crew of the Mikhail Rudinitsky began preparing to lower the AS-34, which entered the water at 1700 hours. At 1830, at a depth of 100 meters and at a speed of two knots, the AS-34 reported colliding with an object and through a porthole, the crew reported seeing the Kursk's propeller and stern stabilizer. The AS-34 was damaged by the collision and surfaced, so the crew of the Mikhail Rudinitsky began preparing the AS-32 for operations. At 2240, the AS-32 entered the water and began searching for the Kursk, but given an incorrect heading by personnel aboard the Peter Valesky, it was unable to locate the submarine. Crew aboard the Mikhail Rudenitsky tried to contact Kirst and briefly thought they heard an acoustic SOS signal, but this was determined to be of biological origin. They reported the sounds to the Peter Velitsky. The AS-32 returned to the surface at one o'clock on Monday morning, the 14th of August. The salvage tug Nikolay Chiker arrived early in the rescue operation. It used its deep water camera equipment to obtain the first images of the wrecked submarine. Video camera pictures showed severe damage from the sub's bow to its sail. They also revealed that Kursk was listing at a 25 degree angle and down 5 to 7 degrees by the bow. The bow had plowed about 22 meters deep into the clay seabed at a depth of 108 meters. The periscope was raised, indicating that the accident occurred when the submarine was at a depth of less than 20 meters. The AS-34 was repaired and launched at 5 o'clock on Monday. At 6.50, the AS-34 located Kursk and unsuccessfully tried to attach to the aft escape trunk over Kursk's ninth compartment. It was unable to create the vacuum seal necessary to attach to the escape trunk, and its batteries were quickly depleted. The crew was forced to surface. When the crew discovered that no spare batteries were available, they were forced to wait while batteries were recharged. Winds, meanwhile, increased, blowing 10 to 12 meters per second to 15 to 27 meters per second, and the waves rose to three to four points, forcing the Russians to suspend future rescue operations. The first official announcement of the accident was made by the Russians on Monday, August 14th. They told the media that Kursk had had, quote, minor technical difficulties on Sunday. They stated that the submarine, quote, had descended to the ocean floor, unquote, that they had established contact with the crew and were pumping air and power to the boat and that, quote, everyone on board is alive. The BBC reported that the Kursk crew had been forced to ground the submarine because it had broken down during exercises, but rescue crews were in radio contact with surface vessels. Senior officers in the Russian Navy offered a variety of explanations for the accident. Four days after Kursk sank, Russian Navy Commander-in-Chief Fleet Admiral Vladimir Kiroyedov stated that the accident had been caused by a serious collision. Vice Premier Ilya Klebanov said the submarine might have hit an old World War II mine. He also said that almost all of the sailors had died before the vessel hit bottom. The Russian government convened a commission chaired by Vice Premier Ilya Klebanov on August 14, two days after Kursk sank. Nearly half of the commission members were officials with a stake in the outcome of the investigation. Independent investigators were not invited to take part, giving the appearance that the commission's findings might not be impartial. Bad weather, 3.7-meter waves, strong undersea currents, and limited visibility impaired the rescue crew's ability to conduct operations on Tuesday and Wednesday. On Tuesday, the Mikhail Rudinitsky lowered a diving bell twice but were unable to connect to the sub. They also tried and failed to maneuver a remotely operated vehicle onto the rescue hatch. At 8 p.m. Tuesday, an AS-34 was launched again but was damaged when it struck a boom as it was being lowered into the sea. It was brought back aboard, repaired, and relaunched at 10.10 10 p.m. On Tuesday, August 15th, three days after the sinking, the crane ship PK-7500 arrived with the more maneuverable Project 18270 Besser type DSRV AC-336. Uh, but the weather prevented the PK-7500 from launching the DSRV. The rescue team decided to launch the submersible near the coast and tow it to the rescue site with a salvage tug. On Wednesday, the 16th of August, 20 minutes after midnight, an AS-34 twice attempted to attach to the ninth compartment escape hatch, but was unsuccessful. It surfaced, and as it was being lifted onto the deck of the mothership, its propulsion system was seriously damaged. The crew of the Mikhail Rudinitsky cannibalized the AS-32 to repair the AS-34. Rescue operations were suspended while the repairs were made. The PK-7500 arrived from the coast where it had launched the DSRV. It repeatedly lowered the rescue vessel 110 meters to the submarine, but it was unable to latch onto an escape hatch. One of the rescue capsules was damaged by the storm. On Thursday at noon, Popov reported to the general staff of the Navy that no explosion had occurred on the Kursk, that the sub was intact on the seafloor, and that an external influence might have caused a leak between the first and second compartments. On Thursday, Russian Priz DSRV made another attempt to reach the aft area of the submarine, but it was unable to create the vacuum seal necessary to attach to the escape trunk. Western media criticized the Russians' 32-hour response time. However, the standard for deploying a recovery vessel in 2000 was 72 hours. The rescue ship Alte attempted to attach a diving bell to the sub, but was unsuccessful. Russian Navy headquarters in Moscow told media that rescuers had heard tapping from the boat's hull, spelling S-O-S, water, although the possibility of tapping through the double hull was later discounted. Other reports said the sounds had been misinterpreted or were made up. Rescue divers did not attempt to 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 tap on the hull to signal potential survivors acoustically. However, video evidence seems to suggest otherwise, as it shows Norwegian divers tapping on the aft rescue hatch while the rescue part of the operation was still underway. Fragments of both the outer and inner hulls were found nearby, including a piece of Kursk's nose weighing five tons, indicating a large explosion in the forward torpedo room. Private media and state-owned Russian newspapers criticized the Navy's refusal to accept international assistance. Five days after the accident, on August 17th, President Putin accepted the British and Norwegian government's offer of assistance. Six teams of British and Norwegian divers arrived on Friday, August 18th. The Russian 328th Expeditionary Rescue Squad, part of the Navy's Office of Search and Rescue, also provided divers. On August 19th, the Norwegian ship Norman Pioneer arrived with British rescue submarine LR-5 on board seven days after the disaster. On Sunday, August 20th, the Norwegians lowered a ROV to the submarine. They found that the first 18 meters of the boat was a mass of twisted metal and debris. Russian Navy officials imposed specific constraints that restricted the Norwegian divers to work on the stern of the boat only, specifically the escape hatch over Compartment 9 and an air control valve connected to the rescue trunk. When the divers attempted to open the air control valve, it would not move. Russian experts on one of the most technologically advanced submarines in the Russian fleet told the divers that they must open the valve counterclockwise or they would break it. The divers finally went against the expert advice and tried turning it clockwise, which worked. The divers tried to use the arms of the ROV to open the hatch, but were unsuccessful until the morning of Monday, August 21st. They found the rescue trunk full of water. They used a custom tool to open the internal hatch of the rescue trunk, releasing a large volume of air from the ninth compartment. Divers lowered a video camera on a rod into the compartment and could see several bodies. The salvage companies agreed that the Norwegian divers would cut holes into the hull, but only Russian divers would enter the submarine. The Norwegian divers cut a hole in the hull of the eighth compartment to gain access using a cutting machine that shoots a high-velocity water and cutting grit mix at 15,000 pounds per square inch pressure. The Russian divers entered the wreck and opened a bulkhead hatch to Compartment 9. They found that dust and ashes inside the Compartment 9 severely restricted visibility. As they gradually worked their way inside the compartment and down two levels, they found the remains of Captain Lieutenant Dmitry Kolosnikov. All the men had been clearly badly burned. The divers cut additional holes in the hull over the third and fourth compartments. The Russian divers removed secret documents and eventually recovered a total of 12 bodies from the ninth compartment. This contradicted earlier statements made by senior Russian officials that all of the submariners had died before the submarine hit the bottom. They also found the boat's log, but had to suspend work because of severe weather. The rescue teams conducted ongoing measurements of radiation levels inside and outside the submarine, but none of the readings exceeded normal ranges. On the 21st of August, After the Norwegian divers confirmed that no one was alive in the ninth compartment, Chief of Staff of the Russian Northern Fleet Mikhail Motsak announced to the public that the Kursk was flooded and all of its crew members had died. Admiral Popov, commander of the Northern Fleet, also addressed the public in a televised broadcast and asked the Kursk family members for forgiveness. Forgive me for not bringing back your boys. Additional plans were made to continue to remove the bodies, but the Russian Navy could not agree on a contract with a foreign company. The families of those who died on the submarine protested that they did not want additional lives put at risk to bring up the dead. On August 22nd, President Putin issued an executive order declaring August 23rd a day of mourning. Russian's Claim of Collision with NATO Submarine On Monday, August 14th, Fleet Admiral Vladimir Kiroyedev stated the accident had been caused by a serious collision with a NATO submarine, although he gave no evidence to support his statement. Senior commanders of the Russian Navy repeated this false account for more than two years after the disaster. Many who wanted to continue negative relations between Russia and the West supported this scenario. During the exercise, the Russians had required each of their submarines to stay within a specified area. This was designed to eliminate the possibility of a collision and to allow surface ships to detect the presence of a Western spy sub. On the 29th or 30th of August 2000, an official government commission tasked with investigating the disaster announced that the likely cause of the sinking was, quote, a strong dynamic external impact corresponding with the first event, probably a collision with a foreign submarine or a large surface ship or striking a World War II mine. They said that the exercise had been monitored by two American Los Angeles-class submarines, the USS Memphis and the USS Toledo, and the Royal Navy Swiftsure-class submarine, the HMS Splendid. When the exercise was canceled due to the accident, these ships put in at European ports. When, While the official inquiry was still underway, on 25th of October 2000, Commander of the Northern Fleet Popov and his Chief of Staff Mostak were interviewed by the Spanish newspaper El Mundo. They repeated the theory that Kursk collided with a NATO submarine, shadowing the exercises. Fleet Admiral Vladimir Kiroyedev stated again on October 25th that he was 80% certain that the accident was caused by a collision with a foreign submarine. There had been 11 collisions between submarines in the Barents Sea since 1967. The Russian Navy produced video footage of the wreck that they claimed showed evidence that this too resulted from a collision. On November 5th, a representative of the Northern Fleet General Staff told the Russian NTV television station that the sinking was caused by a collision. Admiral Mostak repeated this assertion on November 17th in an interview with the Russian newspaper Izvestia. Officials insisted that an American submarine was closely shadowing the Kursk and had caused the collision by getting too close. The Russian Navy produced satellite imagery of the USS submarine Memphis docked at a Norwegian naval base in Bergen just after the alleged collision and claimed that this proved the submarine had surfaced for repairs, but the authenticity of the photos was never proven. But geophysicists who analyzed the seismic signals concluded and reported in February 2001, that the initial sound recorded was triggered by an explosion and not a collision with another vessel. The seismic waveforms of the second event, known by then to be from the explosion of several torpedo warheads, also generated a high-frequency bubble signature characteristic of an underwater explosion of approximately 3 to 7 tons of TNT. When analysts compared the second event with the first, they concluded that the first event was also the explosion of a torpedo. Britain's Black Nest Seismic Monitoring Station, which studies seismic signals generated by underground nuclear explosions and earthquakes, identified two distinct explosions. They determined that the two shockwaves were a perfect match and consistent with a torpedo explosion. Criticism of government response. While the rescue crews repeatedly failed to attach to the rescue trunk and to contact potential survivors aboard the submarine, President Putin was shown on TV enjoying himself on a summer holiday at a villa on the Black Sea. His seeming indifference outraged the families of the Kursk sailors and many other Russians. The Russian media strongly criticized the government's response to and handling of the sinking. Images of angry family members demanding information or waiting anxiously at the dock for news were shown on media worldwide. Some relatives said they learned of the disaster only from the public media or from conflicting rumors circulating at the Navy base. They complained that they did not receive any information from the government on the status of the disaster or rescue efforts until Wednesday, five days after the sinking. Some were unable to confirm whether their family members were among the crew on board the boat. The government refused to release a list of the missing sailors, even to the families of those aboard. A Pravda reporter paid an officer 18,000 rubles to get the list. Even then, the government tried to prohibit reporters from contacting family members. The continued problems that the rescuers had in reaching potential survivors and ongoing conflicting information about the cause of the accident inflamed Russian public opinion. Media described the Russian government's response to the disaster as technically inept and their stories as totally unreliable. President Putin had been advised by the military from the start of the disaster that they had the situation under control and that he did not need to intervene. He was told that there was a strong possibility that a foreign vessel had caused the accident and therefore Russia should not accept help from foreign powers. Only four months into his tenure as president, Putin was highly criticized by the public and media for his decision to remain at a seaside resort, and his once highly favorable ratings dropped dramatically. The president's response appeared callous, and the government's actions looked incompetent. On Tuesday, August 22nd, 10 days after the sinking, Putin met at 8 p.m. in the Vidyevo Navy Base Officers Club and Cultural Center with about 400 to 600 angry and grieving residents of the naval base and about 350 family members of the Kursk's crew. The meeting was closed and access was tightly controlled Two Russian journalists who posed as family members witnessed distraught widows and mothers howling at Putin, demanding to know why they were receiving so much conflicting information and who was going to be punished for the deaths of their family members. German television channel RTL provided the Russian national daily paper with an unedited transcript. The transcript revealed that Putin told the families that Admiral. Kuro Yedev had agreed to accept foreign assistance as soon as it was offered, on Wednesday, August 16th. But he was shouted down as soon as he offered this explanation. The family members knew from media reports that foreign assistance had been offered on Monday. Up to this point, family members had received 1,000 rubles in compensation. Putin also offered the families additional compensation equivalent to 10 years' salary, about $7,000 U.S. at the time. The Russian state channel RTR was the only media granted access. Their severely edited broadcast of the meeting showed only the president speaking, eliminating the many emotional and contentious encounters between the president and family members. Their single TV camera feed fed its signal to a satellite truck on loan to RTR from the German TV company RTL, and RTL recorded the entire event. During the meeting, Nadjenska Tilik, the mother of a Kursk ser- ser- submariner, Lt. Sergei Tilik, was extremely emotional and interrupted the meeting. She harangued Putin and Deputy Prime Minister Kleb Anoff, accusing them of lying to the family members. She told them, you better shoot yourselves now. We won't let you live, bastards. When she would not be quiet, a nurse in civilian apparel behind her forcibly injected her through her clothing with a sedative. She quickly lost the ability to speak and was carried out. Immediately after his wife was given the injection, Tylik's husband said that he had asked the nurse to give his wife the drug because she was prone to excessive emotions. Four months later, Nadjeska Tylek said her husband had lied about the injection to, to the public to save my nerves and that he did not ask for help. Tylik later said, the injection was done to shut my mouth. Immediately after it, I lost the ability to speak and I was carried out. The whole scene was captured by the TV crew, but it was not televised within Russia. Foreign media showed Tylek being removed by officials from the meeting. Tylik later criticized President Putin because he did not want to answer direct questions at the meeting. Maybe he didn't know what to say, but we did not receive concrete answers to concrete questions, she said. Tylik told the St. Petersburg Times that she would go to any lengths to learn the truth about the submarine disaster. They told us lies the whole time, and even now we are unable to get any information, she said. Russians and observers in the West were shocked by the incident and feared that the public sedation of a crew member's mother meant that the former Soviet Union was returning to Cold War era methods of silencing dissent. Tylik said that her son had told her six days before the disaster that the submarine had death on board, but he did not explain what he meant. She said, I am sure that the commanders of the Northern Fleet knew that the torpedoes were not in order. Those who are guilty must be punished. Navy officers in Vidyevo later confirmed to The Times and to the St. Petersburg Times that Tylik was given a sedative. We've been giving sedatives to relatives since this began, and it's not such a big deal as you make it out to be in the West, said an officer who would not identify himself. We are simply protecting the relatives from undue pain. it was for her own protection. In response to the avalanche of criticism, Minister of Defense Sergeyev and senior commanders of the Navy and the Northern Fleet offered Putin their resignations, but he refused to accept them. Putin lashed back at the press, who had been severely critical of his personal response and the entire government's handling of a national tragedy. During the meeting with the crew's relatives, he loudly blamed the oligarchs, who owned most of the country's non-government media, for the poor state of Russia's military. Putin told the family members there are people in television today who over the last 10 years destroyed the very army and fleet where people are dying now. They stole money. They brought them. They bought the media and they're manipulating public opinion. When relatives asked why the government had waited so long before accepting foreign assistance, Putin said the media had lied. He shouted to the assembled families. They're lying. They're lying. They're lying. Putin threatened to punish the media owners and counter their influence through alternative, honest and objective media. He scornfully derided their ownership of property abroad. They'd better sell their villas on the Mediterranean coast of France or Spain. Then they might have to explain why all this property is registered in false names under front law firms. Perhaps we should ask them where they get their money. In a speech to the Russian people the day after his meeting with the families, Putin continued his furious attack on the Russian media, accusing them of lying and discrediting the country. He said they were trying to, quote, exploit this misfortune to gain political capital, unquote. On the same day as Putin's broadcast, Deputy Prime Minister Valentina Matyanko Matyanko, heard head of a special commission announced that the families of the Kursk sailors would receive not only 10 years' salary, but free housing in the Russian city of their choice, free college education for their children, and free counseling. With the addition of other donations received from across the world, the families received about $35,000 U.S. in payments. On July 26, 2002, almost two years later, the government commission and Russia's Prosecutor General Vladimir Yusinov announced that the hydrogen peroxide fuel in the dummy torpedo inside the fourth torpedo launcher set off the initial explosion that sank Kursk. Yusinov released a 133-volume top-secret report in August 2002. The government published a four-page summary. That summary revealed stunning breaches of discipline, shoddy obsolete and poorly maintained equipment, and negligence, incompetence, and mismanagement. The report said the rescue operation was unjustifiably delayed. The bulkhead between the first and second compartment was traversed by a circular 47-centimeter air conditioning duct. The bulkhead should have arrested the blast wave, but in keeping with common Russian submarine practice, the pressurized valve in the ventilation system that traversed the bulkhead was left open to minimize the change in pressure during a weapons launch. The initial blast set off a fire that was later estimated to have burned at 2,700 degrees Celsius. The government report concluded that the initial explosion and fire in the torpedo room compartment immediately killed all seven crew members within. The open valve in the ventilation system that allowed the huge blast wave and possibly the fire and toxic smoke to enter the second and perhaps the third and fourth compartments as well. Although the sub was at periscope depth with her radio antennas extended, no one in the command post was able to send a distress signal or press a single button that would initiate an emergency ballast tank blow and bring the submarine to the surface. All 36 men in the command post located in the second compartment were immediately incapacitated by the blast wave and likely killed. Two minutes and 14 seconds after the first explosion in the torpedo compartment, the fire set off a second explosion of five to seven combat-ready torpedo warheads. Acoustic data recent later analyzed was found to indicate an explosion of about seven torpedo warheads in rapid succession. A single Type 65 kit torpedo carries a large 450 kilogram warhead. While the sub was submerged, 76 crew members were normally assigned to the first four compartments and 49 to the rear five compartments. Although Kursk was designed to withstand external pressure of depths up to 1,000 meters, the second internal explosion tore a two-square-meter hole in the boat's hull, opening the first through fourth compartments to the sea. Water poured in at 90,000 liters per second. The explosion collapsed the first three compartments and all of the decks. In addition to the crew in those two compartments, there were five officers from the 7th SSGN Division Headquarters and two design engineers on board to observe the performance of a new battery in the USET-80 torpedo, set to be launched second. Anyone who remained alive in these compartments was killed by the second explosion. practice torpedo blamed. The government report confirmed that Kursk had been sunk by a torpedo explosion caused when high-test peroxide, HTP, a form of highly concentrated hydrogen peroxide, leaked from the cracks in the torpedo's casing. HTP is normally stable until it comes in contact with a catalyst. It then expands 5,000 times in volume extremely rapidly, acting as an oxidizer, generating large volumes of steam and oxygen. Ordinarily, the oxygen combines with kerosene fuel in the torpedo engine to propel the missile at higher speeds and greater range than conventional torpedoes. Investigators concluded that the leaking HTP had catalytically decomposed when it came in contact with copper, commonly found in the bronze and brass used to manufacture Kursk's torpedo tubes. The resulting overpressure ruptured the torpedo's kerosene fuel tank and caused an explosion that was registered as a weak seismic event on detectors hundreds of kilometers away. Once HTP begins oxidizing, it is impossible to stop until the fuel is exhausted. Analysis revealed that when 1,000 kilograms of concentrated high-test peroxide and 500 kilograms of kerosene exploded, the internal torpedo tube cover and the external tube door were blown off opening the torpedo room to the sea salvage crews located a piece of the number four torpedo hatch on the seabed 50 meters behind the main wreckage this position distance and direction relative to the rest of the submarine indicated that it was deposited there as a result of the first explosion in that tube The fuel on the torpedoes carried by the Kursk was inexpensive and very powerful. Torpedoes using HTP had been in use since the 1950s, but other navies had stopped using them because of their inherent danger in their design. According to an article that briefly appeared on the Thursday, August 17, 2000 website of the official newspaper of the Russian Defense Ministry, Kursk had been refitted in 1998, four years after it was commissioned to carry torpedoes fueled using the cheap HTP. The article reported that some specialists in the Russian Navy opposed the use of HTP-fueled torpedoes because they were volatile and dangerous. The story did not appear in the print edition on Friday, August 18th. Instead, the article was replaced in another that speculated the submarine had collided with an unidentified object. The change was likely due to political pressure. Vice Premier Ilya Klebinov, chair of the government commission investigating the accident, had a vested interest in suggesting the disaster had been caused by a collision with a NATO vessel. As head of the defense industries, over the objections of some officers, he had promoted the use of liquid-fueled torpedoes over the safer, more expensive silver-zinc battery-powered torpedoes. Faulty weld identified. The government's final report found that the officers who had issued the order approving the use of HCP torpedoes did not have the authority to issue that order. The dummy torpedo was 10 years old, and some of its parts had exceeded their service life. Several sources said that one of the practice torpedoes had been dropped during transport, possibly leading to a crack in the casing, but that the weapon was put aboard the submarine anyway. The crane that would normally have been used to load the missiles was, as usual, out of order and another had to be brought in, delaying the loading process. This also made the possibility of removing a damaged torpedo more difficult. Personnel who had loaded the practice torpedoes the day before the exercise noticed that the rubber seals were leaking fuel and notified junior officers of the issue. But they took no action because the exercise was so important to the Russian Navy. Even though the leaks on the dummy torpedoes had been detected, the rubber seals were not inspected before the exercise. The crew was also supposed to follow a very strict procedure when preparing the practice HTP torpedo for firing. Maintenance records revealed that the 6576 kit practice torpedo carried by Kursk came from a batch of 10 manufactured in 1990, six of which were rejected due to faulty welding. An investigation revealed that because the torpedoes were not intended to carry warheads, the welds had not been inspected as carefully as welds on torpedoes carrying warheads. When salvage crews finally recovered the remains of the torpedo and the launch tube, analysis determined that both bore signs of distortion and heat damage that were consistent with an explosion near the middle of the torpedo, very close to an essential welded joint. The official conclusion of the commission was that a faulty weld had led to the explosion. The fifth compartment that contained the boat's two nuclear reactors was built to withstand larger forces than the other interior bulkheads. Like the exterior hull, these bulkheads were designed to withstand pressures of up to depths of 1,000 meters. The reactors were additionally encased in 13 centimeters of steel and were resiliently mounted to absorb shocks in excess of 50 Gs. The bulkheads of the fifth compartment, withstood both explosions, allowing the two reactors to shut down automatically and prevent a nuclear meltdown and widespread contamination of the sea. The fifth compartment also contained recording equipment that automatically recorded the operating activity of the boat. 22 recordings were analyzed by specialists from the St. Petersburg Center of Speech Technologies. They discovered that the system had been turned off on the day of the accident in violation of procedures. Kursk was also equipped with an emergency rescue buoy on top of Compartment 7 that was designed to automatically deploy when it detected any of a variety of emergency conditions like a fire or a rapid pressure change. It was intended to float to the surface and send a signal that would help rescuers locate the stricken vessel. Some reports said that the buoy had been repeatedly malfunctioning and had been welded in place. In fact, investigators learned that Kursk had been deployed to the Mediterranean during the summer of 1999 to monitor the U.S. fleet responding to the Kosovo War. Russian Navy officers feared that the buoy might accidentally deploy, revealing the submarine's position to the U.S. fleet. They ordered the buoy to be disabled, and it was still inoperative when the sub sank. <laughs> Alternative explanations. While the official government commission blamed the explosion on a faulty weld in a practice torpedo, Vice Admiral Valery Rezinstev cited inadequate training poor maintenance, and incomplete inspections that caused the crew to mishandle the weapon. The internal tube door was designed to be three times as strong as the external torpedo door so that any explosion inside the tube would be directed out to the sea. Salvage crews found that the internal tube hatch cover embedded in the bulkhead separated the first and second compartments 12 meters from the tube. This led investigators to conclude that it was likely that the internal door was not fully closed when the explosion occurred. It was known that the electrical connectors between the torpedoes and the internal tube door were unreliable and often required the torpedo crews to open and reclose the door to clean the connection before an electrical contact could be established. Kursk's crew had not filed a torpedo for three years, and that torpedo was a much simpler battery-powered type. The crew had to complete specific maintenance steps on a regular basis and before firing a torpedo. This included cleaning the torpedo of lubricants, metal shavings, and dust that accumulate during long periods of inactivity. After the accident, investigators recovered a partially burned copy of the safety instructions for loading HTP torpedoes, but the instructions were for a significantly different type of torpedo and failed to include essential steps for testing an air valve. The 7th Division, 1st Submarine Flotilla, never inspected the Kursk crew qualifications and readiness to fire HTP torpedoes. Kursk's crew had no prior experience with and had not been trained in handling or firing HTP-powered torpedoes. The Kursk's crew followed faulty instructions when loading the practice torpedo. They set off a chain of events that led to the explosion. The assertion that the signatures on records documenting that the sailors had been trained in handling and firing HTP torpedoes had been faked. It was stated that the warhead fuses on combat torpedoes 1, 3, 5, and 6 were set off when the first compartment collapsed after striking the sea bottom. The director of the research institute that designed the torpedo, Stanislav Proshkin, challenged the conclusion of the government's official report. He said the weapon could have exploded only after an external event like a fire. He said that the torpedoes are routinely tested during manufacturing and are dropped from a height of 10 meters without causing damage that could lead to an explosion. He also said Kursk was designed with two autonomous independent control systems that would have detected a rise in temperature while the torpedo was stored on the racks. The sub was equipped with a special drain system that could rapidly drain hydrogen peroxide fuel from a torpedo in the sea. If a temperature rise was detected in the torpedo tube, the torpedo would have automatically been ejected into the sea. In addition, any fire in the torpedo compartment would have triggered a powerful fire extinguishing system that would have dumped tons of water on the fire. The Russian government committed to raising the wreck and recovering the crew's remains in a $65 million U.S. salvage operation. They contracted with the Dutch marine salvage companies Smith International and Mamouet to raise Kursk from the seafloor. It became the largest salvage operation of its type ever accomplished. The salvage operation was extremely dangerous because of the risk of radiation from the reactors. Only seven of the submarine's 24 torpedoes were accounted for. Salvage divers from Halliburton first detached the bow from the rest of the vessel because it might have contained unexploded torpedo warheads and because it could break off and destabilize the lifting. The divers installed two large hydraulic suction anchors into the seabed and attached a high-strength tungsten carbide abrasive saw that was pulled back and forth over the bow between the anchors. It took 10 days to detach the bow. After the bow was cut free, the salvage crews raised several smaller pieces of wreckage. This included a piece of torpedo tube weighing about a ton, which was analyzed to try and learn if the explosion occurred inside or outside the tube. They salvaged a high-pressure compressed air cylinder weighing about half a ton to learn more about the nature of the explosion. They also raised a part of the cylindrical section of the hard frame and part of the left forward spherical partition to determine the intensity and temperature of the fire in the forward compartment. Finally, they brought up a fragment of the sonar system dome. Converted the 24,000 long ton, 130 130 meter long Giant 4 semi submersible deck barge to carry the sub. The ship was designed to carry huge loads on its deck, but Kursk would ride beneath this ship. Giant 4 had to be completely modified to retrieve and carry the sub underneath. To raise the remainder of the boat, the salvage team planned an extremely complex operation that required them to design and build custom lifting equipment and employ new technologies. They wrote custom software that would automatically compensate for the effects of wave motion due to the rough Barents Sea, which could sever the cables suspending the sub beneath the barge. Divers cut a large hole in the barge's hull to allow room for the submarine's sail. Workers fitted the hull of Giant 4 with large saddles shaped to fit Kursk's outer hull. They cut holes through the barge, allowing 26 hoisting cables to pass through. The team manufactured 26 giant cable reels to hold the more than 200 kilometers of cable to be used to raise the sub. The Giant cable reels fed 26 hydraulic strand jacks, each mounted on a computer-controlled pressurized pneumatic heave compensator powered by nitrogen gas that automatically adjusted for sea waves. Giant 4 was held in position over the submarine by an eight-point mooring system from four twin-drum winches on the main deck. Mayo, a diving platform, was equipped with dive chambers to accommodate the dive teams. They worked in six-hour shifts, and when they were not in the water, the divers remained in the saturation chambers for the entire 28 days that the operation took. The divers used hydraulic abrasive water jets to cut 26 holes through both the outer and inner hulls. The salvage divers mounted custom guidance rings around the holes in the sub and lowered guide cables to each through the holes in Giant 4. The the team then used four guide cables to lower a custom-made Giant gripper, similar to a toggle bolt, which were custom-designed to fit each hole, and the divers maneuvered them through their guidance ring. The crew lowered 26 groups of hoisting cables, each capable of lifting 900 tons, to the submarine and attached them to the grippers. The stand- strandjacks lifted the 26 hoisting cables and slowly raised Kursk until it was beneath Giant 4. On October 8, 2001, 14 months after the disaster, and only 5 months after the contract had been awarded to them, the salvage team raised the remainder of the ship in a 15-hour operation. Once the sub was raised and joined to the barge, it was carried back under the barge to the Russian Navy's uh, Royalesco shipyard in Murmansk. Once there, two giant custom-manufactured pontoons were floated under Giant 4 to lift the barge 20 meters to allow it to enter a floating dry dock with Kursk attached underneath. Once in the dry dock, the pontoons were pumped full of more air, lifting Giant 4 and allowing crews to remove the lifting cables and detach the Kursk. There were 24 men assigned to compartments 6 through 9 towards the rear of the sub of that number 23 survived the two blasts and gathered in the small ninth compartment which had an escape hatch captain lieutenant Dmitry kolsnikov head of the turbine unit in the seventh department and one of three surviving officers of that rank apparently took charge emergency lighting was normally powered by batteries located in the first compartment but these had been destroyed in the explosion however the ninth compartment contained a number of independent emergency lights which apparently worked Kolsnikov wrote two notes, parts of which were released by Vice Admiral Motzak to the media for the first time on October 27, 2000. The first, written at 13 hours and 15 minutes, one hour and 45 minutes after the second explosion, contained a private note to his family and on the reverse, information on their situation and the names of those in the ninth compartment. The handwriting appears normal, indicating the sailors still had some light. It reads, quote, It's 13 hours, 15 minutes. All personnel from Section 6, 7, and 8 have moved to Section 9. There are 23 people here. We feel bad, weakened by carbon dioxide. Pressure is increasing in the compartment. If we head for the surface, we won't survive the compression. We won't last more than a day. All personnel from Sections 6, 7, and 8 have moved to Section 9. We have made the decision because none of us can escape. Kolsnikov wrote this second note at 15 hours, 15 minutes. His writing was extremely difficult to read. The note reads, It's dark here to write, but I'll try by feel. It seems like there are no chances, 10 to 20 percent. Let's hope that at least someone will read this. Here's the list of personnel from the other sections who are now in the ninth and will attempt to get out. Regards to everybody, no need to despair. Kolsnikov. Unquote. The newspaper is Vestia, reported on February 26, 2001, that another note written by Lieutenant Commander Rashid Ariapov had been recovered during the initial rescue operation. Ariapov had held a senior position in the sixth compartment. The note was written on a page of a detective novel wrapped in plastic. It was found in a pocket of his clothing after his body was recovered. It's Vestia quoted unidentified naval officers who claimed that Arayapov wrote that the explosion was caused by, quote, faults in the torpedo compartment, namely the explosion of a torpedo which on the Kursk had to carry out tests. Izvestia also stated that Arayapov wrote that as a result of the explosions, the submarine was tossed violently about and many crew members were injured by equipment that tore loose as a result. To the Russian public, it appeared that the Russian Navy was covering up its inability to rescue the trapped sailors. Analysis of the wreck could not determine whether the escape hatch was workable from the inside. Analysts theorized that the men may have rejected risking the escape hatch even if it were operable and would have preferred to wait for a submarine rescue ship to attach itself to the hatch. The sub was relatively close to shore and in the middle of a large naval exercise. The sailors had every reason to believe that rescue would arrive quickly. Using the escape escape trunk was risky. The sailors were in a compartment that was initially at surface atmosphere pressure, so they did not risk decompression sickness if they used rescue hoods to ascend to the surface. But the Arctic water was extremely cold, and they could not survive long in the water. Also, water was slowly seeping into the ninth compartment, increasing the atmospheric pressure and thus the risk of decompression sickness and death when they ascended to the surface. In addition, it was likely that some of the men were seriously injured and escape would have been very difficult for them. When the nuclear reactors automatically shut down, the air purification system would have shut down, emergency power would be limited, and the crew would soon have been in complete darkness and experienced failing, falling temperatures. There was considerable debate over how long the sailors in the ninth compartment had survived. Russian military officers initially gave conflicting accounts that survivors could have lived up to a week within the sub, but those that died would have been killed very quickly. The Dutch recovery team reported that they thought the men in the least affected ninth compartment might have survived for two to three hours. But the level of carbon dioxide in the compartment exceeded that which people can produce in a closed space. Divers found ash and dust inside the compartment when they first opened that hatch, evidence of a fire. But this fire was separate from that caused by the exploding torpedo. Captain-Lieutenant Kolstnikov, evidently the senior officer in the compartment, wrote a final note at 15 hours and 15 minutes in the dark, giving evidence that he was alive at least four hours after the explosion. Other notes recovered later show that some sailors in the ninth compartment were alive at least six hours and 17 minutes after the boat sank. Vice Admiral Vladislav Elian, the first deputy chief of the Russian Navy staff and head of the Kursk Naval Incident Cell, concluded that the survivors had lived up to three days. In any event, the Russian rescue teams were poorly equipped and badly organized, while foreign teams and equipment were far away and not given permission to assist it is unlikely that any rescue by either Russian or foreign specialists could have arrived and reached the sub in time to rescue any survivors. While waiting for the boat to be brought to shore, a team of military doctors set up a temporary forensic laboratory at the military hospital. After Giant 4 was floated out of the dry dock, water was drained from the dry dock, exposing the Kursk's hull. Salvage teams cut into the compartments to drain water from the interior. Ordnance teams removed the Granite cruise missiles and the Stallion anti ship missiles from outside the hull. On October 23rd, two investigators and two Navy commanders were the first to enter the hull. The next day, October 24th, eight teams of investigators and operational experts began analyzing the debris found inside the boat and recovering and identifying remains of the crew. Working from a database of personal identification details, including the crew members' features, dental x-rays, birthmarks, and tattoos, the doctors examined the bodies as they were brought to the laboratory. Salvage team members found a large number of potassium superoxide chemical cartridges used to absorb carbon dioxide and chemically release oxygen to enable survival in the ninth compartment. Autopsies of the crew recovered from the ninth compartment showed that three men suffered from thermal and chemical burns. Researchers concluded that Captain Lieutenant Kolsnikov and two others had attempted to recharge the oxygen generation system when they accidentally dropped one of the chemical superoxide cartridges into the seawater, slowly filling the compartment. When the cartridge came in contact with the oily seawater, it triggered a chemical explosion and flash fire. Kolsnikoff's abdomen was burnt by acid, exposing his internal organs, and the flesh on his head and neck were removed by the chemical explosion. The investigation showed that some men temporarily survived this fire by plunging underwater, as fire marks on the bulkheads indicated the water was at waste level at the time. But the flash fire consumed all remaining oxygen, so that the men still alive after the flash explosion quickly dived of carbon monoxide poisoning. Water continued to seep into the compartment, and by the time the rescue divers opened the compartment, they found only a small air pocket containing just 7% oxygen. Bodies recovered from the ninth compartment were relatively easy to identify. Those recovered from the 3rd, 4th, and 5th compartments were badly damaged by the explosion. Forensic examination of two of the reactor control room casualties found in compartment 4 showed extensive skeletal injuries, which indicated that they had sustained an explosive force over 50 Gs. These shocks would have immediately incapacitated or killed the operators. One sailor's body was found embedded in the ceiling of the second compartment. Three crewmen's bodies were completely destroyed by the blast and fire, and nothing of their remains could be identified or recovered. The sinking of the ship, the pride of the Russian submarine fleet, was a devastating blow to the Russian military. The Kursk's participation in the exercise had been intended to demonstrate Russia's place as an important player on the international stage. But the country's inept handling of the crisis instead exposed its weak political decision-making ability and the decline of its military. Once the human remains had been removed and the hull had been thoroughly investigated, the remainder of the ship was transported to Seda Bay on the northern Kala Peninsula. The two nuclear reactors were defueled and the ship was cut up for scrap. Finally recognizing the hazard of the HTP fuel torpedoes, the Russian Navy ordered all of them to be removed from service. That's it for today's episode of Wikiredia. Look, before you go, be sure to hit subscribe, follow us on Twitter at itswikiredia and tell your friends. What do you want to listen to? Send topic ideas to our email, which is Wikiredia at pm.me. Our producer and narrator, that's me, is Eric Goris. Our engineer is OJ Tingles and our content editor is Johnny Rocketship. We ask you to support this show by following and sharing, but more importantly, just listening. We also ask that you do your part to support Wikipedia itself by considering a donation to the Wikipedia Foundation. That can be done at wikipedia.org. All, or at least the vast majority, Of the words spoken on this show are from the text of Wikipedia entries, and we're using those words under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license, which grants us, and in fact anyone, the right to adapt the original work, remix it, and then to distribute and transmit the work even for commercial purposes. This license requires that we name the author of the original work, which in this case is Wikipedia. Wikiredia itself is also distributed under the same Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Wikiredia is a production of Eric Public Media and the Alaska Ice Corporation.